This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. The conversation about how to respond and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results. The core of the problem must be addressed, and that is the nature of modern policing itself. Broken windows practices, the militarization of law enforcement, and the dramatic expansion of the role of police have created a mandate for officers that must be rolled back. This book shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, and even public safety. Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reduction in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, my guest is Matt Chrisman, one of the hosts of the podcast Chapo Trap House. Love it, hate it, or profess indifference, Chapo has, over the past 18 months or so, come out of nowhere to become one of the most influential media outlets, if media outlet is the right term for a podcast straight out of left Twitter, in this budding new democratic socialist milieu we've all suddenly found ourselves in. Anyhow, I don't have time for much more of an intro today because what I had written up was on my personal computer, which died about an hour before I ran over to the studio, and now I've got to run to the store to get it fixed. Speaking of things that cost money, if you haven't yet, we're aiming to get 700 supporters on patreon.com by year's end. We just passed the 500 mark. So take a minute, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And also, there will probably be no diglet this week. I'm off to Atlanta to speak at the Drug Policy Alliance's conference there about why we need to stop the war on drug dealers as well. If you're around on Saturday, come check it out and say hi. Matt Chrisman, welcome to The Dig. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell me about how you got into left-wing politics. I read somewhere that you went through a libertarian phase was that mostly about suddenly discovering that weed was cool or was it more of an Ayn Rand fanboy thing? Yeah, calling it a 
libertarian phase is probably making too much of it. It was really just the fact that in high school, I decided that weed should be legal, essentially. And it never really progressed into any kind of coherent political vision. So it was just really a blip. And I never really thought of myself as a large L libertarian. And I certainly, and I only read, uh, I've only read Ayn Rand well after I had jettisoned that just to see how bad it was. And guess what? It's really terrible. <laughs> so I'm glad you waited till you were thoroughly inoculated before, before opening yeah. it. Well, I, can't, I honestly don't know how anyone could find it persuasive. It's just so suffocatingly banal. I had a heavily weed-oriented phase at a, as a teenager, but it pushed me towards the, the Green Party. At the time, when I was 17, I passed out homemade flyers at a smoke fest in Boston Common, um, just trying to convince people not to vote for, for the Libertarians, because they really do kind of own the, the smoke fest scene. Oh, that's too bad. It is. It as, is. Maybe as, not these days. As the great and late great Brooklyn juggler on Twitter once said, uh, libertarian forward definition is pothead who is racist. <laughs> yeah, my flyers were basically like Ralph Nader also likes weed, um, <laughs> but unlike Harry Brown, does not want to eliminate public schools. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about what attracted you to the left initially. Was it um, a, a social network thing or uh, encountering a certain book or publication? I, there really wasn't there. I can't, it's, I can't really point to a specific encounter. I think I was always, I always just had an, in, my instincts were always towards the left, I guess. I don't even know. I certainly didn't grow up that way, but I've always had uh, an incohate leftism, I think. And over the years, it just got more sophisticated as I encountered ideas that sort of allowed me to give uh, coherence to that sort of intrinsic sense. And I saw it, but as to where that, that inclination came from, I have no idea. Is it to be found anywhere in where you grew up? I think in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, is that right? Manitowoc. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, not really. I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up surrounded by salt of the earth, uh, white racists. Well, you know, uh, the people who make the backbone of this country and who, and the basically everybody I grew up with sort of just went forward with the, the values that they'd been inoculated with as kids. And, uh, I, I always, I guess I just, I, it probably just came from that sense of being alienated. I always felt pretty alienated from the scene and the, and the, the people around me. And since that, was sort of a reflexive conservatism, then that made me sort of suspicious of that value system just because I felt a weird uh, alienation from it that, as I said, I can't really explain. Is it fair to say that the prevailing political culture there is well represented by um, Congressman Glenn Grothman, who represents it in Congress? Uh, I, I haven't been following Mr. Grothman, but uh, I'm sure he probably does. You should look. You should look into him. Um, he's uh, well known for his opposition to both Martin Luther King Day and Kwanzaa. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds ab- absolutely like the people of Manitowoc County are being uh, ad- accurately represented in Congress. So that's good. So before Chapo took off. My sense is that 
I don't know like what the diplomatic way to phrase this is. You were somewhat aimless. Uh, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I was a, I was a person who didn't really know what I ne- wanted to do in any kind of larger sense, but I liked the internet and uh, it gave me that sense of interaction and structure that you don't get when that you're looking for when you don't find it elsewhere in the real world. Speaking uh, of the the internet, is it good or or bad or or both in your opinion? Well, obvious nothing nothing that massive and and world changing can be singular in its effect. I'd say that on balance when we look back, if we can look back on the internet, we will have made in uh unless it transforms into something else that that ends up saving humanity or something. Uh, I think it, we're going to look back on it as, on balance, a negative. Why is that? I just think that it exacerbates trends of atomization and isolation and alienation that are present, obviously, in any capitalist society. But it basically gives people the ability to opt out of being a human in a way that they maybe wouldn't have been able to do before the Internet existed. And I think that seems to be a pretty seductive and dangerous thing to have in a society to be able to just decide that you're going to find your sense of accomplishment and connection in a virtual setting and basically just turn your back on on society whatever that means Uh, i think that it just makes us makes it that much harder to create social solidarity, which is the engine for progress of any kind. Does Chapo, in terms of its fan base, sort of reach into that void of people who've turned away and sort of meet them where they're at and try to turn them back a bit? I, I think it has that effect. I hope it has that effect. I certainly know that Chapo is successful due to alienation, uh, that we're basically able to uh, re- have the reach that we have and have the effect we have because people feel lonely and they turn to the internet to simulate uh, the relationships that they're not finding in the real world. And I, I hope, and I think, but I can't obviously prove that we pull people out of that a little bit. I mean, it, it's a dual thing where for on the one side, it is sort of giving people another out Another another virtual uh, relationship that they can they can indulge in instead of a real one. But uh, the one the thing that I always remember to make myself think that maybe we have a more positive effect is how in the months after the election we were hearing tons of people talking about how they had joined their local DSA or found DSA chapters, and before we had mentioned it as an institution on the show. We didn't. I felt. I don't think we talked about DSA the first time. I'm fairly certain it was the episode that we did in. I think it was. Uh, I think it was the, the winter. It was early 2017, and that it was. We talked to Amber about it because she, Amber, our co-host, uh, is a longtime uh, uh, member and and has been in leadership in it for years. And we talked to her about it, but this is months after we'd started hearing from people that they were joining DSA because of listening to the show when we hadn't mentioned it. 
And that suggests to me that something about the nature of our presentation energizes people in a way that online content doesn't always. What do you see as as the state of the online discourse and its import? I mean, it, 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 the state's pretty horrible and it can seem like a distraction, but but I don't think you would spend so much time mocking it if it didn't unfortunately matter. Oh, it's very, it's very important. We, a lot of people say the internet doesn't matter. And I've said that before. And in a sense, it's true. I I would say that the internet doesn't really matter in the sense that the content doesn't for the most part matter. The stuff that, what it is specifically that passes in front of your eyes when you're spending time online doesn't really matter because you're editing what you're seeing. You're, you're already sort of, uh, creating a curated version of the internet that is uh, is geared towards your pre-existing beliefs and predilections. It's the process, but the process of spending all that time online and being there is absolutely important and absolutely matters. The level on which the content does seem to matter is that the people in charge running half the world through the US military industrial complex meat grinder and chomping at the bit to means test poor people into the grave you know they they do read op-ed pages and inexplicably are are guided by what is stated in those pages when they're making policy decisions yeah, well, that's the thing is that there's there's elite discourse and then there's there's comp, there's popular discourse and it's not really the same thing. The things that people in power are consuming that shape their opinions are still those sort of legacy media's that we keep hearing are dying and are not meaningful in the 21st century. It, like you said, op-ed pages and uh, the. Uh, the journals of, of note, you know, the periodicals, uh, that's where, that's where people, uh, at the highest levels are doing, are getting the ammunition for their projects. Uh, but the, the discourse that is being bandied about at the level of popular internet content, popular internet conversation, I, I don't think it really penetrates except of course for Donald Trump, but he is of course the exception to every rule. And even him, I don't think he really spends much time on the internet. He just watches TV all the time, which is another legacy media. One thing that a lot of mainstream appraisals of of Trump's media habits get get wrong is that that they tend to focus too much on his tweets and not a much, not enough on just the surreal amount of time that he spends sitting in front of the TV. It's astounding, and his tweets are almost always responses to things he's watching on television. It's it's not a, it, whenever there's some seemingly out of nowhere screed that he throws up there, it's child's play to look at what was on Fox and Friends five minutes beforehand to see why he started tweeting about that. When he, in the middle of yelling about the uh, NFL players, he took a second to say that the Golden State Warriors were uh, not invited to the White House. And it, people looked, oh, he, the, they had a segment about Steph Curry on Fox and Friends 20 minutes before he tweeted that. He's, he is really just, he's a, he is 
a relatively tech-savvy version of the reactionary grandparents who, uh, who have formed the, the majority of voters in this country. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think there's sort of a corollary to what these appraisals get wrong about Trump, to what they get wrong about the American electorate. All this attention being paid to these Russian bots and Russian hacking, because the Internet's new, I feel like mainstream analysts, journalists, commentators um, look to the Internet to explain why Donald Trump's president when it's really probably a lot more about AM radio and Fox News. Yeah. If we're looking for a media source. Right. And but that's this thing is that. The media, the, the, not, not the elite media, but the content mill media spend all day on Twitter. And so to them, Twitter is the world. That's why Ch- they, to them, Chapo created the left. Uh, and, that's why, <laughs> and that's why the alt-right is the, the tip of the spear of uh, white supremacy, not you know, the, the legion of reactionary grandparents uh, who moved to white flight suburbs or the police departments of America filled with guys who probably, for the most part, don't tweet. So because the people who are putting out the content that everybody is reading and discussing every day spend all the time in that same hothouse of online, they get a skewed version of vision of where, these, where the real power lays and where the real influence is. And as, as unsetting, upsetting as it is to get besieged by Pepe's, they are not the people who are, care, who are upholding white supremacy in this country. And I, I, as much as I, I would love to take credit for it, uh, our podcast uh, is not the reason that the left is resurgent, at least uh, has the possibility of being resurgent in this country. In terms of the relationship between politics and culture on the one hand and the economy on the other, I understand that you're a fan of Marx's The 18th Brumaire? Yeah, it's, it's well, the one I recommend just because it's it's relatively accessible uh, and uh, pretty funny. I mean, for 19th century stuff. Yeah, he's very witty in it, and it's him kind of picking apart a concrete moment in in history. And it's about, in some, I mean, it's about the the relationship between economic structure, the base, and superstructure, uh, ideology, culture, and politics, and how the two interact, and how culture and politics can take on a relatively relative independence from underlying economic conditions. Like, in other words, Marx was not a vulgar Marxist. What's your take more broadly on the import of, because we've talked a little about the import of like media and the internet, about the, the, the role played by, by pop culture and the political and political theater um, more generally on the one hand, and on the other hand, the, the economic realities that either put food in people's mouth or take it out of people's mouths. Well, I feel like Gramsci gets overemphasized due to uh, the left's of position of disempowerment, really, it's sort of trying to take your consolation where you can. And a lot of that is that there is more of an influence and the more of a dynamic left in culture than than would be ref- than you would imagine reflecting, considering the economic realities. And then there's a temptation to sort of say, okay, that's the, that's the path then, because that's where we have sort of a foothold and where we can make an influence. And I feel like in a society as dominated by media as ours, the importance of 
uh, cultural aspects and media things is important is is very very crucial and it's going to be a big part of whatever form a mass left movement in America takes but i i guess my my instinct would be to uh, to remind people if you're going to err on one side i would err on the side of focusing on economics and focusing on 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 organizing around issues because the seductive power of focusing on media and focusing on culture is really really big and there's plenty of uh examples of of moments where uh, uh a seemingly insurmountable cultural uh leftism has sort of come to very little in the way of uh of actual progressive movement certain instances of that that chapo tends to zero in on are things like hamilton and uh the oscar people at you know hollywood award ceremonies uh saying fuck you yeah. trump right there's such a seductive power in seeing that and thinking oh we've done something where this is this is an accomplishment the, the one speaking of the oscars the one that I remember most vividly from a few years ago is when uh, uh, Laura Poitras won uh, the Oscar for Best Documentary for her film about Edward Snowden. Just the huge expulsion of uh, the, the sense of vindication and, and power coming from that, the sense of a culture ratifying, whistleblowing and ratifying uh, the view that the NSA had vastly overstepped any kind of meaningful restraint and, and needed to be reined in. But it didn't really uh, result in anything. It, it, it was really it just a moment of, uh, it's just a cultural, a momentary cultural explosion. And meanwhile, the NSA wiretapping essentially just got metabolized. And it's now just something that everybody knows and that is just another kind of boring fact uh, that the NSA has the ability to, at any time and place, monitor anybody's uh, uh, electronic communications. It's just now something that we take for granted. Uh, And you certainly wouldn't have gotten that impression watching people celebrate uh, the Oscar uh, being given to a film about those revelations. And given by, as should be pointed out, an institution, uh, the uh, Motion Picture Society of America that backed uh, absurdly regressive laws to try to limit the ability to pirate things over the Internet uh, and has been on board with a whole raft of of high tech solutions to the the problem of intellectual property theft uh, that have also uh, that are also very uh, dangerous to to. Uh, privacy and digital rights. So I think that's that's the kind of thing I think of when I remember when I when I get too excited or wrapped up in the idea of building alternative cultural frameworks. They can celebrate a movie about Snowden, but would have no problem attempting to put Aaron Schwartz exactly, in prison yeah, or pass uh, pass SOPA. One key part of the media criticism that Chapo does are the is the conservative articles that you guys read from the National Review or the Federalist. 
and you do sort of an MST3K uh, kind of takedown and mockery and deconstruction of them as as Will reads reads through the article. I find that helpful because I typically can't bring myself to to read that sort of. No, I certainly media. can't either. Uh, Will does yeoman's work because I I absolutely couldn't <laughs> read through all of those things. I can only I could barely read the parts that he reads to me. What do you think is to be gleaned from it aside from mockery, which which obviously is is a, a pleasant thing to glean from it? I think that the value comes from pulling apart the faulty reasoning, basically, and just trying to dismantle the ambient reactionary premises that sort of float around. Because that's the thing about these these articles, for the most part, is that they're not feats of Olympian reasoning. They're not, they're not bold new ventures in reactionary thinking. They're just regurgitating the, the pieties that are just floating around uh, throughout uh, American discourse and, and, and culture and that end up sort of settling in the cracks throughout uh, everywhere and end up in your uncle's Facebook feeds, you know? <laughs> and I feel like for people who, especially especially people who are just starting to sort of maybe come towards the left, uh, having to push against what they get from every quarter of their life, uh, parents, friends, family, uh, aforementioned Facebook posts, being able to go to a place and have the underlying premises of these thoughts challenged and undermined and shown to be faulty. I think that there's a value to that. That's in addition to just the cathartic, uh, enjoyment of how clownish the writers are, which is pretty significantly clownish. Yeah. High, high level clowning going on. And it seems like part of the deconstruction is showing how the stupidity of the arguments being made in the pages of the these publications are are sort of echoed by the the kind of garbage that they are aesthetically um like the the, the prose is is oh, really God. yeah and and i, I horrible. Uh, some of them i feel like the prose is bad to sort of simulate seriousness and also to 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 give you a a, a <laughs> surface level presentation of ponderous thoughtfulness, but then also just make it so, so deeply numbing to read that you're not even really at a certain point processing what you're, what you're reading because it's too much effort to get wade through that muck. I mean, Megan McArdle, I think would be the chief example of somebody whose prose style is so suffocatingly banal and, and just, soul sucking that it's really just the fact that there is an article that maybe somebody can share that exists. And then the actual prose is just a, a quicksand of boredom that keeps anybody from really looking at it and challenging it. Another thing that sticks out about the, the reading series is that if I remember correctly, you guys tend to mostly read from the National Review commentary sort of publications from the self-professed conservative intelligentsia 
not really uh, the the Breitbart's of yeah, of that's the, actually of the right wing. That's web. true. I think that might there might be some East Coast bias to that, frankly, because these are the the, the August uh, traditional mouthpieces of the right. Uh, I, I think part of it also is that the, the Breitbart stuff, I think we challenge, I think uh, when we go after the alt-right and challenge that, we're doing it more because the legacy conservatism of those institutions is really, it's it's of a previous generation. It It, it is sort of a, it's, it's becoming increasingly, culturally anyway, irrelevant. It still obviously is hugely influential in foreign policy and the basic premises of of capitalism and, and neoliberalism obviously are are overwhelmingly held at the, at the commanding heights of power, but culturally it's 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 certainly on the wane, uh, which is why we find them in these old these magazines. Uh, like Breitbart is is like the flagship alt right publication, but I really don't feel like mag, uh, that articles really speak to the alt right. D- discourse. If it feels a little anachronistic, when we talk about the alt right, we talk more about them in their terms, podcasts, YouTube videos, and and tweets and stuff like that, because that's really the language of that emergent conservative current. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the Dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, the Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. I think another useful thing about focusing on the self-professed conservative intelligentsia legacy media is that outlets like Breitbart sort of speak for themselves. Like everyone, uh, they're kind of like synonymous with 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 racist, and in a sense that functions to exculpate the tr- the the establishment conservatives. But when you take a look and just read an article in the national review like will did a few months back where a guy is just basically complaining at <laughs> remarkable length that yeah. there's an African-American museum in Washington, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. Like, like they, this is like a fundamentally racist movement and a fundamentally racist publication, um, whose founder opposed the yeah, civil rights movement. The, the, the idea that there's a different, that there's a fundamental ideological difference between these groups is, is I think was something that uh, those more respectable conservatives like to promote, but isn't really true. Uh, the differences that they have with the alt right are on issues that really don't have anything to do with the things that are most objectionable about the alt right. On those issues they are basically on the same page the only difference is the 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 type of language that they employ yeah these are these are people who are a little bit annoyed that trump is so explicit with his racism although as these reading series as any look at the history of the modern conservative movement shows they're plenty explicit about their racism as well and their genealogy is fundamentally rooted in a 
right-wing white supremacist backlash. Um, but what really pisses them off is not that. What pisses them off the most is things like Trump's so-called economic nationalism and his occasional reluctance to yeah, exactly. yeah, invade they, they, other they countries. Are, their feelings are very hurt that re- Republican voters, turns out, don't care about keeping the estate tax low. You know, They don't really care about supply side. Uh, they don't care about free trade. And th- that makes them feel inad- that makes them feel uh, impotent, honestly, because they've been spent they've spent 30, 40 years convinced that their brilliant propaganda is what turned sort of the mass of uh, middle and, and working class white people into sort of reflexive conservatives and not and not really the reality is that it was much more disillusionment from a failed uh, Democratic Party and uh, the appeal of of, of uh, whiteness as a concept, and they don't like the idea that they didn't that really them and the millions of dollars that went into their think tanks and magazines and uh, cable news appearances isn't what did that. Yeah, with the whole Trump NFL comments seem to show is really what has been so appealing about Trump to his base is the same thing that's been appealing about the Republican Party to its base for decades, which is a promise to put unruly black people in their place as some sort of salve either to people with actual economic difficulties or to economic elites who who are able to to justify their their status vis-a-vis you know the pathologization of 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 those those right. below and them, they, especially they, they especially can't people really of color. process that it wasn't their uh, op eds about the fucking Laffer curve or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, much more. Though, though it might have been Charles Murray. How do you think Chapo breaks from the mold of the sort of left liberal comedy news that took root during the Bush era with the Daily Show? I think the main difference is, is that is that the Daily Show model uh, for political com- comedy is one that is premised on the basic idea that there are functioning institutions in America that you can put faith in. There are norms and there are there are things in this country that sort of keep the worst at bay and that if there is some sort of momentary lapse in, in, in civility or in, uh, in government that is responsive to people's needs, it will be corrected through uh, electoral means, uh, through the tidal gravity sort of, of of the regular American citizen speaking up about for themselves and for their neighbors and all that. And that, therefore, when there's a bad, quote-unquote, a bad president, and that's the other thing is that it's so fixated on presidents and on administrations and on their public pronouncements that really their chief job is to give you a shoulder to cry on as someone to show someone to let you know that you're not crazy. This guy is bad. He is dumb. You're right to think that uh, and that we're all in this together and eventually we'll figure it out. And our show, I, I think, 
is much more focused on pointing out that none of these institutions exist for your benefit, that there is no check on the worst possible option from occurring, and uh, that the most awful stuff that is going on in this country on a day-to-day -day basis actually has little to do with the commanding heights of the federal power or the pronouncements of the presidents. I have to admit that I found those shows pretty funny at the time, but I, it's it, what you're saying is exactly right because the the show's ultimate kind of analytical take home point the the apotheosis of that oh, was really the, the the march Absolutely. to restore One sanity. Of the worst things ever. Yeah, truly, true. I, I, which you know, this early iteration of this now very dominant idea that the core problem with American politics is that. Republicans have just gotten too abnormal and irrational, especially, and that all we really need is the good old days when Tip O'Neill and Reagan would, you know, sit down and, and hash things out, come across the aisle, have a reasonable oh, discussion. Yeah. Well, that, that's the, good the thing of the American is that it is, it is an aesthetic critique. And I think that's the big difference if you want to make it sort of a bullet point. It's that their critique of, of power is yeah, an aesthetic one. Totally. And the rally to restore sanity really was the was the apotheosis of that whole mindset. And honestly, he, he probably should have quit. John Stewart should have quit right after that, because not only was he never coming back for that from that in the sense that it was just a, a really depressing and, and abhorrent spectacle, but also he could never top that either in terms of, of producing another test case of his own blinkered view and 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 failed project of, of satire uh and i it, it came and the thing is is that he was sort of constrained by that and constrained to that response because he had so vociferously defined himself as a comedian first and foremost one who was not advocating a political point of view, who was just pointing out absurdities wherever they may be, that really uh, that really straightjacketed him. I mean, I think he saw the rise of the Tea Party and was rightly horrified at, at what it symbolized, but his own self-presentation and self-definition meant that he couldn't do anything other than criticize their tone. He could not make an actual political critique because he basically ruled that out for himself. And then, of course, the, the real kicker is that, what, two weeks after that rally, the Tea Party stormed into control of the House of Representatives. I want to talk about your outlook on the American people and humanity more generally, which to me sort of seems to oscillate between cynicism yeah. and hopeful empathy. <laughs> you recently said that the American people had become a 300 million person human centipede through which shit is rocketed Correct. through like a giant Haldron collider. But you, <laughs> but you also seem to really hold out hope that um, a majority can be organized to fight yeah, for uh, democratic socialism. It, honestly, I, I do not have a consistent view. It very much varies on the day and what I've just seen and probably what I had for lunch. Uh, my, uh, sometimes I feel like there are 
avenues, there are fractures within the so seeming uh, hell world neoliberal consensus that can be exploited and opened and widened. Other times it feels like there's just a suffocating, uh, this suffocating blanket of, of mediated uh, political discourse that will always find a way to disperse energy and distract and and push people away from from those real and meaningful fissures. Uh, and uh, like I said, I can't really tell in a given day which one is going to be a more predominant feeling. Uh, right now, I'd say I'm pretty pessimistic, but like I said, I haven't really eaten yet, so who knows? If I have a good sandwich later, that might change. <laughs> Does your perspective on these things have any sort of longer historical arc or trajectory? Like, did you used to be more cynical and have things like Occupy, BLM, and the Bernie campaign shifted you a little more towards tending towards optimism? In general, more optimistic than I was a few years ago. I think that's probably true. Although obviously Donald Trump being president makes it kind of hard to hold on to that. But I don't know. The, the election of Trump, obviously one thing, very bad for America, very bad for the prospects of, of people in general. Uh, the real danger of the Trump presidency when, when, and why when he won on election night, I was so sure that our show was doomed. Uh, is that I was worried about that Bush-era liberal solidarity smothering the emerging meaningful distinctions between leftists and liberals uh, uh, it, over what the future of the country needs to be. Uh, and to my enjoyment and satisfaction and surprise, that hasn't really happened. It seems like those wars are still being fought with all of the same passion and urgency that they had been during the Democratic primary, for example, and that that urge to come together, that urge to form a popular front behind behind milquetoast neoliberalism hasn't solidified. I mean, don't get me wrong, it could still happen the presidency is less than a year old, but it hasn't happened yet, which is honestly more than I would have thought possible on election night, for example. I was discussing this with Eve Pizer um, recently, how I think even you guys tend to say like, oh, getting tired of relitigating the Democratic primary, and maybe it'd be better to have this debate in a way that's not relitigating the Democratic primary. But yeah, like that's the thing. The art, if it's if you're talking about who threw a chair in the Nevada caucus, <laughs> or you know who got questions from Donna Brazil, or who murdered Seth Rich, any of that, that is the most tedious shit imaginable. Well, but we know who murdered Seth Rich, so it's not worth discussing. Underlying the underlying conflict. The, the difference between people who want things like Medicare for all and and drastically uh, reall reallocated and, and uh, redistributed uh, wealth 
and people who want to tinker at the edges of, of dead neoliberalism. That obviously has to continue to happen at B-Center. But uh, this, uh, we talked about this on the most recent Chapo about how the original kneelings protest that Colin Kaepernick did was about police brutality. And once Trump got into it, it got abstracted onto this very stupid argument about people's right to protest and making it more of a general uh, resistance to Trump. The same thing happens it, when you turn a real argument about the future of left politics and left electoralism into one about Bernie and Hillary. Yeah, everything, maybe it's because of the, the nature of the media today, and maybe this is something where the internet matters, because even if um, most people aren't on Twitter, journalists are, and the way these conversations very quickly transmogrify into something very much other than what they're really substantively about. That's what's so enervating about it. And that's, and that's what, when, when it happens, that's what makes me feel more pessimistic is just that there is just such a overwhelming flow of information coming towards people. And there's such a maddening urge to have a thing to say and a take that having a take and, and reading a thing and arguing over it ends up replacing the work of doing politics. And because you're already at the level of rhetoric, you're already sort of abstracting away from politics as something being done in the real world. That makes it that much easier to abstract it further into a symbolic debate about some aspect of a deeper, actually material conflict. It seems like that tendency towards rapid hyper abstraction also relates to the conspiracism that's so commonplace in American politics from loose change, 9-11 is an inside job, to more recently Pizzagate, where people really don't have a clear view of how power operates, but know that things are really fucked. And so they, conspiracism, I think, functions as these sort of grotesque metaphors for how people view view political economy. No, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, look at the the stuff of like reptilians. I mean, the global elite are fucking reptiles <laughs> in any meaningful sense. They're cold-blooded. They view the rest of humanity through lidded eyes uh, as just things to be extracted from. They'll let us all die uh, if it if it means that they get to keep their their extraordinary and and disgusting and obscene privilege. They are, for all intents and purposes, reptiles. But they're not actually reptiles. 9-11 uh, deeply it was a boon to neoconservatives and to the project of extending American military power into the Middle East. They might as well have been the ones who actually uh, blew up the World Trade Center. Doesn't mean they did. And the thing is, is that, yes, people don't have a way to talk about power. They only have a way to absorb narratives. And conspiracy theories are compelling narratives in a way that a dry analysis of world power 
and capital is not. I mean, if you watch a, a, a any Alex Jones video where he lays shit out, everything is a reference to a movie. He will reference, I saw when he talked about the orb, when, when Trump went to Riyadh and touched the orb with King Solomon, he had a 10 minute video in which he referenced Lord of the Rings and uh, the movie Heavy Metal, and uh, I think two or three other ones, maybe Phantasm, I don't know. But it's all in the context of narratives that people actually understand and that have, have imaginative power. And so filtering that ambient sense of alienation and aggrievement from a power structure that has no use for you as anything other than a cog in a machine, and for many people not even that much use, narratives like conspiracy theory are incredibly compelling in a way that it's difficult to make concrete analysis of power compelling. And that's one of the things that makes me feel despair. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. There are um, these two anthropologists, I don't know if you've read, uh, Gene and John Komaroff, who write a lot about this, um, you know, sort of what was expected to happen with was that capitalism was supposed to spread enlightenment rationality globally and sort of disenchant the world. It was supposed to become this clean, uh, antiseptically, uh, technocratic, rational place. But in reality, the exact opposite happened. And with the rise of neoliberal financial capitalism, it became ever more difficult for ordinary people to understand in any meaningful way how wealth and power is is produced um, and transferred, which actually abets more kind of magical thinking and conspiracism rather rather than this sort of enlightened rationality that the global capitalist class triumphant after the fall of the Soviet Union was supposed to, to bring about. If people can't see it, if, if people are ruled by literal phantoms, by literal ghosts, by, 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 by forces that are beyond their comprehension, control, or understanding, how the hell are they supposed to uh, process the world through this sort of uh, rational matrix? How are they not supposed to... Uh, to fall back on, on sort of mysticism and on superstition. The reason that people used to think that, uh, you know, the, the sun was like an angry God or whatever, and you'd eat the moon or things like that is because they didn't have any other context for what that, what was happening. Uh, it's the same thing, The people, if, if, if your factory gets closed down one day by, uh, by a boss who you've never seen or met in a, in a, in, in a state, in a country that, and sent to places that you don't know anything about for reasons that can never be explained. If your vote 
no matter what it is in the ballot box, never translates to any kind of meaningful change. How are you supposed to do anything other than consign your fate to the realm of uh, of superstition and to uh, supernatural occurrences? Because there is nothing in your immediate ken. There's nothing that you can analyze uh, empirically that can explain your situation. Why do you think Pizzagate is such a potent story? Because it speaks to the reality of of the hyper predatory nature of the global elite that Hillary Clinton represents. They, I mean, you read about what has they've done in Haiti and 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 with the Clinton Foundation. They are in a meaningful sense, that they are as predatory globally as people who would uh, abduct a bunch of kids and eat them in the basement of a pizza restaurant. <laughs> so it has, it has resonance. You see a person as transparently phony and mechanistic as Hillary Clinton representing interests as clearly alien to yours as she does, uh, at some point you have to translate that unease and, and alienation into a story. And the story of eating kids in a pizza basement is a story that has uh, resonances through other stories that you've seen in media and, and culture and movies and TV in a way that the story of yeah, this is a predatory international global elite. That that story doesn't really exist. So it's harder it's harder to to make it concrete in your head. There's no more concrete way to understand this exploitation than this embodied coercive steal creation of value out of out of the very bodies of victims. Yeah, exactly. Like they are turning people into toppings. But just not literally but there's no other way to talk about it. We don't really have a vocabulary for talking about capitalism as an exploitative mechanism outside of a metaphor. And so the metaphors then become all we could really get our head around. Brief fun fact, John Podesto is my little league coach. <laughs> did he uh did he ever make you into a pizza? I'm I'm so many toppings right now. I'm <laughs> I want to talk um, a little bit about the various debates and criticisms that swirl around Chapo. Okay. Um, the show is obviously uh, very beloved, but also very controversial. And I imagine some many of my listeners love the show and others are not fans. Haters are our motivators. <laughs> it's what gets you out of the bed in the morning or not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. As the case we, might be. in bed all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the criticisms of the show come from different places and take different forms, um, some that I respect less and some more. One, which uh, I know you are aware of, came from Jeet here at the New Republic, and that is that being mean isn't effective politics. Um, I know you disagree, but can you explain why? His, pre his thing is based on the premise, one, that when we refer when we're making mean to people and this is this is a conflation that has happened over and over again is that when we insult or are demean or belittle 
the, the apparatchiks of the modern Democrat, contemporary Democratic Party that were somehow actually referring to the voters of the Democratic Party, the, the, the people who have basically are been held hostage to a political party that is the only alternative to a rampaging fascism, and that we're somehow insulting them for making the totally rational choice to choose the lesser of two profound evils. And that, that premise is already faulty. And the, the second one is that, uh, specifically what Jeet was saying, is that we are, going, we are insulting people who could be allies. And, I, and as long as we're stipulating that we're not referring to voters, because frankly, I think we, there's enough polling data to show that voters, Democratic voters, are to uh, a significant extent to the left, significantly of the Democratic establishment, and also the vast number of non-voters in this country that are, at, are profoundly to the left of them. They're so far to the left of them that they made the equally rational decision that voting doesn't matter. But we know enough about their views that 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 we can uh, we can we can hope at least, and I think with reason, that there is a groundswell of, of genuine left belief there. The people at the top, though, the the, the apparatchiks and and media mouthpieces are absolutely not people to be recruited. They're not people to be to be uh, persuaded. They're people to be defeated because their interests are not our interests. Their interests are in maintaining a neoliberal democratic party. For that is what they want. That it is not. It's not a parlor game of debate. It's not. People aren't. American politics is not about persuasion of the opposite side, because they have their beliefs for a reason. Usually, having to do with their material interests, especially at the top, where we're talking about at the level of media of media influencers and and politicians and political uh, functionaries. And that interest is over, overwhelming, and that interest is what determines views. And as such, they are not persuadable. They must be overwhelmed and defeated. And frankly, that was my only real criticism of when Will said bend the knee, is that the implication there is that they are, we are broadly on the same side. And I'd say they would have to bend the knee in a context where they're all, they are held hostage to a left-wing movement the same way that leftists now are held hostage to the Democratic Party, where they have to fucking swallow their pride and their actual preferences in order to not vote for the actual literal fascists. Yeah, the the, the thing that's wrong with Jeet's premise that you pointed out, um, you know, this idea that criticizing Hillary Clinton, for example, is tantamount to criticizing her voters, it, it's wrong in a kind of ironic way because actually looking back at the primary I can't think of a single example truly not a single one of a left-wing Bernie supporter mocking or condemning an everyday Hillary Clinton supporter yet the demonization and mischaracterization of just the most ordinary Bernie Sanders supporter was one of the favorite things for pro-Hillary commentariat to write about Oh, absolutely. It, it, it was it was so clear. Uh, every Bernie bro article is shitting on regular voters. Meanwhile, all, every example that people had of any kind of harassment is was, for the most part, valid criticism of people in positions of power. 
And that disparity persists to this day. On to one of the criticisms made by people that I respect the arguments of a little more. My partner is a woman and a socialist, and unlike me, is not a huge fan of the show. And at a recent cookout, I was talking to her and another couple about Chapo. And in that couple, the man, like me, was a fan of the show, and the woman was not. And I'd had these conversations before, and um, what the woman in the other couple said was that she doesn't like it more or less, if I remember correctly, because it sounds too much like too many of the male conversations about politics that she already hears all the time. What do you make of of women in particular, the argument of women in particular who find the show too, I don't know, like doodly, too male? They're probably right. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I, I, I can't say how a woman would process the show. I, 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 I can't I can't speak to her experiences that would make her find what find our tone or whatever unappealing. I totally get I get it. And uh, at a certain point, it just becomes a, a matter of preference. And I don't begrudge anybody who doesn't like the show. Um, if you don't, that's fine. You don't have to like it. I, I don't I don't like when people get criticized for saying they don't like the show just for whatever. I mean, I don't like when people lie about the show or, or, or uh, impute things in it that aren't there. But if you say that it's, it's too many guys, it's sounds like a bunch of guys are lecturing me as, as I can't imagine what it's like as a woman to have to endure uh, the overconfidence, stentorian political blather of some dudes. And then and and I, I get why you wouldn't want to recreate that experience in headphones so that those voices are in your fucking brain and you have no ability to uh, to interject or, or or stop them. So uh, so yeah, I just I I just don't I just I don't begrudge anybody who doesn't like to listen to it because not every everybody has their own experiences and their own aesthetic preferences and their own life. Uh, and 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 those things are going to impact what they find amenable, and as such, uh, I I am happy that people like the show, and I absolutely get it when I when people say they don't. Even though it is um, mostly male hosts, and I my sense is a, a largely, by no means exclusively, but largely male listenership. Oh yeah. But I, I think there is a um, feminist case to be made for the conversation that you guys are having with male listeners. And I think it's this. You're engaging a lot of men in an Internet world where in a world more generally where just extremely fucked up forms of masculinity are powerful forces. A lot of what you guys talk about and 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 mock is is sort of deconstructing this sort of men's rights ethos that permeates the the right and the notion that feminism has ruined society, ruined sex, ruined family court. I like to think that that's the case, but I think that's a separate question from whether women are turned off by actually listening to the show. I, I do feel like it is a show that stands up for feminism, that 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 ratifies uh, feminist critiques of society. But at the same time, I don't think that obligates any women to like it. 
switching gears before I let you go, did you ever imagine when you first started the show that it would strike the chord that it has? And oh, oh no. <laughs> and why why do you think that it has struck that chord? I mean, I think like with most most quote unquote successful enterprises in America, the the presiding element is luck. Uh, that's that's I think that's true basically everything, and I think it's true of our show too. It, we we the show came on. We started it in right in the middle of the Sanders Clinton primary race, at a time when the only real media voices were on that were online were talking about Bernie Bros. That that was really it. There was the Bernie Bro as this created artifact and then the discourse around whether it was fair or not or whatever. And there it, it really was a barren uh a discourse that way. There was very little discussion of the actual policy differences between Clinton and Sanders. There was very little discussion of, of uh, the failures of the Obama years and, and, and the, the sort of situation that we found ourselves in and, and specifically how that was going to be addressed by politics. And instead there was this meta discussion about this made up term and how accurate it was or whatever. And we came on the scene at a time when we could basically be, hey, okay, Bernie bros, this is what they are. Here's what we actually think. Here's the thing that you've conjured up in your think pieces. Well, this is it literally given voice. This is the voice. This is Bernie bro speaking. For 12, 12 months, you have asked, who is Bernie bro? This is Bernie bro speaking. And... And as a result, the people who had felt underserved by that discourse, I think, found something to latch on to, to say, this is it. This is what we should actually be talking about. This is what I actually believe. And it gave people that, that same sense that early Bush-era uh, Daily Show did of, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. There's other people who think like me. I think that's right. Um, and for better or for worse, it's not just Chapo and left podcast, but really everything um, left of the right wing that's really taken off in podcast land. As big as Chapo's listenership is, I'm guessing Pod Save America's is, I don't know, it's, it, like presumably, yeah, more popular. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not all a happy, not all a happy story. <laughs> There's still plenty of people going out there to get the sort of. Um, oh yeah, no, I mean we're we're still very niche niche. Thing in a niche voice and that's why every article where someone says talks about the new left or whatever and it's just basically implying that we created it is so funny because it's just uh, such a distorted vision well matt chrisman thank you very much yes thank you for having me Matt Chrisman is a host of Chapo Trap House. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once etched into a bathroom stall, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
we are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a friendly review. I mean, it's up to you, but I hope it's friendly. Also, please let your friends know about the show if you think they'd like it. And last but in no way least, find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. We really depend on you to keep this thing going.